Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's meeting with Jyoti Bra and the Workers' Party of Britain. The topic of tonight's meeting is art for art's sake. I'll pass over to Jyoti to start the meeting. That's great. Thanks very much, Rob. Uh, welcome to everybody to this uh, our last in the series of weekly Workers' Party meetings. There's going to be many more, I'm sure, but not quite in the same way that we've been doing them up till now. Um, as you know, or many of you will know, we've been holding our public and private members meetings um, weekly throughout the lockdown ever since March. Um, and many of you will have been tuning in every week to hear really inspiring and educational talks, especially from our party leader, George Galloway. Um, and we've also been having private members meetings uh, following those public meetings in which our members have been able to dive deeper into all the issues that have been covered in the public meetings. Um, and they've covered a vast array of, of different topics that are important to the working class. Um, and as well as that, we have dedicated quite a lot of time to discussing the details of our party programme and in particular our, our 10 point programme. And we've gone into you know, various aspects of what, what that means, uh, what further policy ideas could come from those brief outlines. Um, and one of those meetings was dedicated to point nine of our party's programme, which is open and easy access to all forms of culture and the media. And, um, you know, you never know what you're going to get when you start a meeting uh, with such a kind of broad headline. And it could have been a kind of, yes, yes, we all agree, that's that. Uh, but in fact, we were really surprised, pleasantly surprised to find a real, real enthusiasm amongst our membership for that topic. It was a very passionate and uh, involving meeting uh, when many of our members spoke up and, and and turned out to have a huge amount of interest and passion for the topic. And we discovered there was a real unsuspected wealth of talent and experience in our ranks. And we really felt that we didn't want to finish this series of weekly meetings without sharing some of that knowledge and experience with the wider audience. Um, and for tonight's meeting, we have pulled out just three of really many outstanding voices which emerged to us during the course of that uh, conversation. And the first one I want to introduce you to is Helen Sutcliffe, uh, one of our uh, founding activists from Yorkshire, one of the many strong voices who's emerged during our weekly meetings. Um, and she had a, a story that really struck a chord with really many of us who heard it uh, in that meeting that I talked about. And so we really wanted to share it with a wider audience. You know, Helen was an aspiring young actress in the 1980s, that's the Thatcher era. And she talked to us about the difficulties that she faced. Um, and I wondered, Helen, if now you could tell our audience tonight a bit about your experience of trying to access and participate in the arts and also maybe why you think workers should care about things like the arts when they have so much else to worry about. Thanks, Jyoti, um, for that wonderful introduction. Um, yeah, so I'm just going to talk a bit about um, my struggle trying to be an actor or trying to break into the world of acting um, in the 1980s, as Jyoti said. Um, so I left school at 16 um, without qualifications um, 
I was living on a council estate. That's where I grew up at, at the time. And I was born into relative poverty. Um, and so, as I said, I had no qualifications, no prospects to speak of when I left school. I had no, not even a factory job to go to. Um, it was at the height of uh, Thatcher's government. Um, uh, and I found myself, I ended up on a, a youth training scheme, which was nothing to do with what I wanted to do. That was the only option at that time that was open to me. Um, and I ended up washing tables in, in cafes for £25 a week, um, which even in those days was no money at all. It was a laughable amount to try and live on. Um, and I, yeah, so just before I left school, just going back, I was ushered along to the um, careers advisor uh, for the, you know, the token sort of standard visit to see if we can sort out some sort of a plan for what I'm going to do with my life. And I sat down and she said, so what do you want to do with your life? And I, I said, well, I quite like devising plays and theatre and, and doing stage work and things like that. Um, and I'd quite, I'm quite good on a stage and I think that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to be an actor, you know. And she's sort of nodding along and she, um, you know, a, a smiling away and taking it all in and then when I'd finished speaking she said have you thought of shop work um you know and that was her response not that she'd ever seen me on a stage and I like to think that if she had seen me on a stage maybe she would have had a different response who knows but the reason she hadn't seen me on a stage is because we didn't do drama at my school we hardly had any art lessons at all. We had a standard art class and a standard music class without an instrument in sight, I have to say. You know, it was mostly singing and clapping along, clowning around and <laughs> whatever. It was, there was no serious um, edge to it at all in my school and in my experience. Um, so I didn't get into... I, you know, I took her word for it. She gave some wrong advice, actually, about needing qualifications to go to drama school, and you haven't got any, so forget that and join an amateur dramatic society and do it as a hobby. Um, and that was the advice. And so I went away and took that advice. Well, I didn't join an amateur dramatic society. I just didn't bother. And it was not until I'd got into my 20s and I went to the West Yorkshire Playhouse in Leeds, which was a very good theatre, and they had a community theatre group at that time. Um, and a very a wonderful director running it, uh, Michael Birch, who took an interest in what I had to offer 
and in you know and still he was my mentor and he is my mentor still in his 70s now he's still working he still comes up to Leeds he lives in London now but he comes up to Leeds to help me and others and he's prepared to help a lot of people so he's one of those rare people that that um that actually just wants to help people like me get into acting um and he said go to london he said go to drama school sleep on a park bench if you have to but go to london because that's where you need to be and i followed his advice uh and i auditioned at, i started auditioning at drama schools and bearing in mind that drama schools in even in those days an audition one audition at drama school at the accredited ones in london they were 80 odd pounds a throw even then and that was a lot of money I, I, god knows what they are now i wouldn't like to think but i so saw in the we well it was in the 90s by now actually and i'm in my 20s um and that in itself because they like you to be 18 when you go to drama school if you're 23 when you start auditioning like i was they're um they want to know why what have you been doing you know you elderly person sat here at 23 and that creates a doubt in you to start with but there are so many other barriers when you're poor um apart from the obvious ones about i mean if you look like me i have to be realistic you know the universe did not gift me with <laughs> with the, with the looks um that make it so much easier for people i don't care what anybody says you know that's the obvious thing and they look at me and listen to my accent and they think well you know, she's never going to play anything more than the maid, is she? Let's face it. <laughs> you know, whether we're talking BBC costume dramas or whatever, she's not going to work very much. So, but other than that barrier, I also had, I used to get the overnight coach to London from Leeds because it was cheaper, you see. And I'd be deposited in London at 5 a.m., with very little money in my pockets <laughs> and I'd trail the streets of London like a vagrant <laughs> because my audition was like you know had to be at RADA at 2 p.m you know <laughs> and so you, you you've got that to contend with so by the time you do turn up wet through because it was inevitably raining <laughs> quite a lot of the time you know you turn up at drama school looking like something the bus ran over and with you know lots of stress and you can imagine the state you know your your psychological state when you get there because you've got the nerves to start with as well and you're sat in some breezy corridor thinking what am i doing here this is you know i'm full of doubt and then you go in do you i'm, I'm sorry i sound as if i'm making excuses for myself you know i mean to be honest, yes, I could have taken more responsibility myself. I could have been more committed. I could have looked for more advice and got more advice, but I didn't do those things. And it's so much harder, as I say, because of all the other barriers that needn't be there. 
Um, and and so I'd sit and you know I do I did some quite decent audition speeches and and they I, I got a lot of recalls. But then when you get to the interview, you see the first question, apart from why is it taking you so long? <laughs> why are you so old? Apart from that, the the next question is, how are you going to support yourself if you move to London? And, I, you know, well, I, I said what Michael had said to me, hoping for, a, you know, thinking I was going to get a human response for them. Forget that. But I said, well, I'll, sp I'll sleep on a park bench if I have to. <laughs> Just give me the place, you know. And <laughs> there wasn't any human response to that. These people are in a, a business. They want to know if you'll sell. And they want to know if you'll, you know, stay and get along and you can finance yourself and all that. So... I didn't get a place at drama school. I think I would have been, I would be, have been a better actor if I had gone to drama school. I'm okay. And I'm still doing it and I don't care. Uh, I don't care if I have an audience or I don't have an audience. But that's the, the you know, a lot of the problem with, with trying to do it as a work. Oh, certainly back then. And I think it's even worse now, actually. I, I don't know. Um, and in answer to your question, Jyoti, why should workers care about the arts when they've so much else to worry about? Um, well, the obvious thing, I think, is that art helps really. I mean, there's growing body of um, research to show that art actually helps people this with the other stresses and the worries and, and things like that. And if they're not having art, and music and dance and all that stuff in their life, then they're um, quite likely, it's quite likely to lead and manifest into other physical illnesses and depression and you've only to look at the suicide rate and art can help with that. And, and there's another big reason as well. And it's so that the working classes as a collective, whether it's poor people or middle income people or you know, anybody who has to sell their labor in order to support themselves, sustain themselves, um, they need collectively to be able to express, they need outlets to be able to express their story and express themselves and to have that bond between each other and that sort of consensus that this is who we are and quite a lot of the time you know people don't get it they think they get it I mean yes there's sort no don't get me wrong there's some very good filmmakers such as Ken Loach that deals with working class issues really really well and things like that but then you have other films such as Billy Elliot and we get this quite a lot which is kind of it's celebrating the idea of a person who's been able to escape from the working class um, rather than embracing what it is about the working class culture that makes us, you know, take the camaraderie, the, the culture, the working class culture, the community stuff.
Um, and playing instruments, playing on stage, the operative word is play. And human beings need that. We're not donkeys, you know, we're not beasts of burden having to work 50, 60, 70 hours a week in order to justify our existence and having nothing else in life. We need art just as much as we need bread and butter. I'll shut up, but thank you. <laughs> That was beautifully said, Helen. Thanks very much, so much for sharing that with our audience tonight. Um, I think you've touched on some such key points there. Um, and right at the end there, when you were talking about play, you know, in fact, play is intrinsic to all mammals, never mind even all humans. It's an absolutely a part of the bonding of us as a species um, and even, a, even as a genus, you know, uh, it, is, it is intrinsic to a healthy, normal, uh, sane and balanced life. And you know what you said there about the art is something you need as much as bread. You know, it, it brings back that old socialist slogan, bread and roses. You know, life is not only work. We're the workers party. We re represent the class that works. We recognize that humanity as a species uh, has developed and risen above its origins through work. Work is what makes us human beings in many ways, but work is not drudgery or shouldn't be drudgery and it shouldn't be all. There's no indication that our early ancestors, which, you know, living in primitive tribal uh, communities, which we have done for the vast majority of our history as a species, uh, worked all day, every day to the exclusion of all other activities. Social life and artistic life, community art uh, producing, music making, singing, dancing, storytelling, these things are absolutely central to the human experience. And uh, you've, you've really highlighted that really nicely, I think. Um, and just on that point that you made about escaping, you know, it is a very much the, the capitalist narrative of the boy done good, you know, you can make it. And what they mean when they say you can make it is you can make it out of the ranks of the workers in some way or other, maybe as a baseball star, maybe as a pop star, maybe as a, the one person out of a billion who became a billionaire, right? Uh, leave your class origins behind you is the secret of success in a capitalist society. And it's what we're all taught to strive for. It's the meaning of the American dream. Anyone can do it except for only a few people can do it, you know? Um, but that narrative of escape is what's dangled in front of our kids. Um, and it's a kind of perversion of the concept of art that you use it as a method of getting away from people. When in fact, art is all about bringing people together and expressing their communal realities. Um, I'm going to move on now to the second of our speakers, uh, Tess Delaney from Pembrokeshire, another one of the very strong voices that has emerged in our ranks during the lockdown. Um, she's gained quite a fan base amongst our online audience um, for her, both for her forthright contributions in the meetings 
and also for her wonderful writing. So any of you that haven't already visited her blog, Postcards from the Hedge, I urge you to do so. It's, you know, witty and, uh, and very thoughtful at the same time. Uh, so a, quite a winning combination. Um, but it turns out that amongst the many things Tess has done in her life, she's also a former lecturer in theatre, uh, where she worked at the University of Wales in Carmarthen, and she's got a wide array actually of academic and practical insights into both the present and past attitude of workers to the arts and the arts to workers. Um, so Tess, you've been involved in all kinds of theatre and music making, and you've studied the history of the theatre in particular, has it always been the preserve of elites as it seems to be today? Thanks, JC. That's an amazing introduction. Thanks so much. Um, no, it hasn't. It hasn't at all. But um, like, I'd kind of want to start with what is art? You know, like you were saying, from time immemorial, people have done art, even with their work. You know, we see cave paintings of little bisons running around and they made music and drumming they made drums out of goats from garage band to opera it's all art but never the twain shall meet you see you, you can't have napalm death and Pavarotti on the same page you're not allowed because they're they're not allowed to be both art you see so um I'm a I'm a working class kid I'm the first person in my family that went to university and I did theater um I could because my I had a young son. I did that thing where you have a kid at 18 and I had a young son and he was in school and I was able to get a student loan. And because it wasn't a grant, it was a loan, I didn't feel any guilt about doing something that I thought would be fun, which would be theatre. I avoided like the theatre. When I first left school, I, I went to work in a puppet theatre at a theme park and I didn't go to uni until I was um, uh, 25, 26, something like that. There was no drama in school in the 80s when I was there. It stopped uh, at the end of the second year. Um, and that was the end of that. So um, to me, theater was panto. It was red curtains and it was grease paint, you know, from when I was a little kid and it was puppet shows. And when I went to uni to study theater, <laughs> wow, <laughs> what? I had no idea it could be, you know, political. I had no idea that there were people like Brecht who used it as a political tool and Augusto Boal and theater and revolution and British political theater. and. It blew my mind. It's like, where's the grease paint, dude? It's like, I just want to, I just want to do a funny play. <laughs> why, why are you like having all these horrible Edward Bond plays and things that are just horrible and not, not very entertaining? They're, they're telling me things. I don't want to be told things. Life is bad. I want to, I want to go to the panto, <laughs> you know. So, but they, they beat me and I learned and, and then as I went through, I learned that what was really happening is that art has been turned into a commodity you know when you look at the history of the theater in particular which was my subject which i still say theater darling because you know that's what it's assumed isn't it even by me it's a theater darling um but originally theater wasn't the upper class pursuit that was really expensive that it is today it was used by the church to teach the the uh, illiterate population the stories of the bible and of course, people being people, they started like, you know, making up their own little rude versions and putting them on in pubs. And then the, the guilds started sort of putting on plays like the, um, you know, the carpenters would build a cross and, and or they would do the nativity or, or whatever. And it became it was a, it was a group thing. And in Shakespeare's time, they the, the groundlings, they paid a penny, they stood at the bottom 
and everyone could go. Everyone went to the theatre. It was the Coronation Street of its day. That was that was what you did for your mass entertainment. The theatres started getting built at the end of the 16th century and and everybody loved it. You know, it wasn't just for the posh people. The posh people, they started to build higher tiers in the theatres, which is you still get those in old fashioned theatres today. That's where the, the kind of posher people would go. But the groundlings, they paid very little and they would spit at the actors and they would all be very shouting and drinking and whatever. It was it was a kind of bawdy affair that was in no way posh or or anything. Um, but with the the Industrial Revolution and the advent of electricity, you end up with um, more indoor theatre, which had been happening already, but with gas lighting. So ballet dancers used to catch fire all the time and, you know, loads of fires in Drury Lane all the time and loads of people dying. And but there we are, we clean up, we open the theatre, the show goes on. That's how it worked. Um, but as, as it all got a bit more sophisticated, um, there was one theatre owner in the West End, and I can't remember her name, I should have looked it up, but she decided to raise her prices. And all the theatres around her went, well, that's not very good on this. So they all raised their prices. And what happened was then you got this split where the East End London would all be at the music hall, knees up Mother Brown, and all the, the posh people would go to the West End because they had the money to go to the nice theatres where there weren't horrible, bawdy people. And then the advent of, uh, you know the talkies moving pictures cinema and then and then television mass entertainment moved so far away from what we perceive as art but you know without working class kids going to drama school you're, you're not going to get those those good accents for eastenders are you you know it's 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 one of those things the problems helen was talking about of drama school i experienced all that myself and i didn't even bother applying i just went to the nearest college up the road because i had a kid and it was easier but when i graduated after the third year i remember going for an audition up to the bbc and the fella said like where have you been you're 28 i said yeah i've got a kid and he said so you've wasted your life up till now having a kid and now you want to waste the rest of it being an actor so i thought well that's encouraging. <laughs> so, but it seems, here's another example of the ruling class nicking our stuff. It was a working class pursuit. It was group activity. And now it's been gentrified and ticket prices in the West End are astronomical. You can't even get in as a groundling for a couple of quid anymore. Even half price as a student is expensive to go. It's all about exclusivity and, and status. It's not to do with group activity and, and culture. You know, the old folk art, of the working classes that's not allowed anymore there's this snobbery that's not perceived as artistic enough and you take away our education for the masses you take away expression and confidence and freedom of thought and that can that can never be replaced they want us to be dumbed down because they don't want confident workers who are able to speak and who are able to look you in the eye and, and talk to you they don't want you to be able to do that they want you to be oppressed and that's why they've kind of split it and um, and for as long as it's a commodity, people feel the workers feel that they can't get involved, and and community theatres and things like that. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could do do more things like that where people could get involved? I'll, I'll, I'll just give you one story that I think sums it up wonderfully for me. It, it's always been my go-to example of of um, what's so wrong in in it's the attitude of art. Um, I had a friend. Andy, bless him, he's dead now. But he was he was a theatre director and he was very smoked a lot of cigarettes. And I lent him on VHS, this was a long time ago, the Russian King Lear, it's in black and white, and the South Park movie. 
And the Russian King Lear, if you know King Lear, it's the, it's the harshest play in the entire world with eyes gouged out and everybody's dead at the end. It's nasty. The Russian version is horrendous, right? So he watched these two videos. I got them back. I said, what do you think? And he said, oh, the Russian King Lear was astonishing, wonderful, wonderful. And I said, oh, cool. What about South Park? And he said, no, no. We turned it off after 10 minutes. It was too aggressive. <laughs> Which if you see South Park, the movie, it's all about mindless violent things are okay so long as nobody says any naughty words and to me that just sums up the whole argument of the thing so thanks for listening and um go to the theater um let's make it cheap thanks everyone thanks josie brilliant thanks tess i can see from our other participants that that went down very well and um I'm sure you'll have added to your fan base as a result. Uh, yeah, I mean, some, some beautiful insights there, again, into this commodification of the arts, the elitism uh, that's intrinsic to the way capitalism treats the arts, you know, some art for us, some art for them. It's something that I, in particular, uh, find really offensive, actually, is this divvying up of art into art, which is for the working class, an art which is for the elite and art for the elite is the high art and art for the working class is low art but for me if it's good it should be for everyone and the achievements in the classical spheres as well as the popular spheres of music dance theater and art are the achievements of humanity they belong to all of us. Nothing was created by someone out of nowhere. Everybody stands on the shoulders of the generations and millennia that go before them. And so the greatest achievements of art, whether it's Shakespeare or Mozart or, you know, Eminem, if it's great, it's great and it's for everybody and it needs to be shared and access needs to be given to everybody. There is a reason why the high arts are so respected. And it's not just, you know, because they're separated off for posh people. You know, there's a reason the posh people have sort of monopolized them, if you like. They do represent something really important. And what bugs me is this mentality that they have forced onto the working class of that is not for me. It's not even my business to know about it or to enjoy about it, you know. Um, there was a brief period uh, in the 20th century where there was a broadening of access. And we did see working class people becoming, you know, ballet dancers and concert musicians and, you know, Hollywood superstars. Um, and increasingly that's been closed off again. And I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit later on maybe, but, you know, these achievements of the arts belong to all of us and we need to take them back. We mustn't buy into this idea that high art is for somebody else and has nothing to do with us. It does, and it is ours. If we, if we don't feel that the content reflects our lives, that's something that we can change and we ought to be changing, but the form is ours. It belongs to humanity and that means it belongs to us too. Um, and I think that's a good place to, to, to come on to our final speaker tonight, uh, Christina Costula in London. Uh, Christina grew up in Greece. 
a country where socialist politics have been part of the public discourse for many decades. And um, she's regularly inspired the audiences at our weekly broadcasts with her wonderful eloquence. And in particular, you know, we've been moved by some of her very, um, yeah, moving testimonies of Greece's plight as it's been forced into becoming a uh, colony, really, of the European Union. Um, Christina is a dance teacher and a dance historian, and she's taught extensively uh, in her field, everything from early years ballet classes to theoretical courses in universities. And she's taken a special interest in the arts in socialist countries. So Christina, from your perspective as a dancer, a teacher and a historian, what do you think really differentiates the attitude towards the purpose of the arts in capitalist and in socialist societies? Thank you, Jyoti, for the wonderful introduction. It's my honor to participate in this discussion tonight with the fellow workers of culture. We are all workers, producers and uh, sharers of artistic experiences. And as we said, it's capitalism that divides, that divides consumers and producers. My question to, my, my answer to the question, what is art for? if it's not for art's sake. It's given, I think, through my personal experiences, we all had some autobiographical details to share today, but it's the experience of working class people. I became interested in dance and I became a student of ballet because my father, who was a tailor, had heard that Russian ballet was something, a worthy pursuit. And when a, a Russian, Russian trained teacher opened a school in my neighborhood in the 80s in Athens. He said, it's worth taking her there. He wanted me to learn folk dancing and he was very interested in me learning Russian ballet. Back then the Soviet Union still existed. So it was really Soviet ballet. It was what the Soviet Union had done with this amazing heritage appropriating, taking it from the Tsarist uh, enclave, the elitist enclave, and giving it to the people and turning it to the pride of the people, a pride that even my father, a Greek tailor, shared and wanted me to participate. To quote a great champion of the arts and the artists, artists are engineers of the soul. We need engineers to build and we need artists to build what relates to the spirit, to the soul, to the character, to the ethos of a people. It is the foundation of our humanity, as Tess and Helen so well explained. But as you have said, Jyoti, many times, there is the logic of humanity and there is the logic of capitalism, right? And the logic of capitalism is to make art and to make all of us slaves to the demands of a competitive market. The laws of a jungle to turn us into cannibals, into cannibalistic narcissists. And it turns creativity into a product, a product in a market 
together with other homogeneous products. You can even buy your individual difference in this market, but everything is homogeneous in this. And it turns artists into beggars. We need another uh, live co conversation, discussion into what this pandemic did to artists, right? And how artists were treated. So artists are becoming increasingly begging beggars for some state subsidy right now, right? But the state has taken no stake in the arts, really. It is, that's why art continues to be the realm of the rich and of the philanthropists. And I happened to be someone who was teaching for a ballet charity and I was going to schools and I was teaching working class children. I was introducing them to ballet, vocabulary, ballet music, ballet expression, basically a workout to fight this trend of obesity, right? And this trend that young people have, they sit in front of a screen and they do nothing with their bodies and they do nothing in tandem with other bodies, nothing collectively. And this charity was a project that was a philanthropic project for someone who had the money to do it. It wasn't the responsibility of the state. So with the pandemic, the charity went bust and I do no longer have the ability to reach out to 11, 12 schools and teach ballet the way I used to. This is the attitude to art. It's to tick a box, maybe for a term. There's no sustainable planning. There's no development. We just tick boxes. And as we said, the artists are in the arena of the Hunger Games. And they need to survive. But was it always like that? Tess explained very well, no, it hasn't been always like that. And I'm going to tell you my favorite subject, as you know, is classical ballet. Because I've done different styles of dance and different, and I studied different types of arts, stage arts, but classical ballet has always been my, my favorite subject to teach and also to research. And indeed, the story, the history of Soviet ballet in particular, because it doesn't matter where you talk about ballet in, around the world, everyone recognizes that there is something special about Russian, the Russian ballet school or the Russian theater school with Stanislavski that Tess, I'm sure, and Helen know. What is it that makes it special? What makes it synonymous with create, creative depth? It is that it reflects, still reflects today, the society that created it, and that was a socialist society. And it made it the pride of the people, as we said. It makes it special because it had content. It wasn't abstract. It wasn't something complex and formalistic that only those trained in it could understand. It was made accessible because it had it was a reflection of what was going on, real relationships and real pieces of art, of literature that people knew, learned about at school and could relate to. So it had an organic living connection with the culture of the people and with folk art that they said 
we've seen in this country completely abandoned. Folk art is the basis for ballet. So a lot of dances contain national dance movements. And this is what still makes Russian dancers special because they dance what we said, what we call character dances, folk dances, dances of the people who have all the life and all the passion and all the culture and all the color. So uh, we have the classical heritage and we have the development of the best techniques that still influence Russian theater arts. And th this is a beauty. It's a beauty that exists uh, in every endeavor of the workers, because the beauty is in helping people to live. It makes life bearable. And it calls for what we don't have, we cannot have under capitalism. It calls for an op optimistic perception of life. And this is what people go back to, even in this pandemic, you know, what music did we want to hear during the, you know, the lockdown? What made, made this bearable for us? What kind of art? You know, a lot of people stopped watching and listening to anything because nothing was relevant to that experience of the lockdown. All things were, you know, superfluous or too depressing. But the purpose of art is to help us live and to help us with the struggle for human happiness and to make us feel fulfilled. So in the ballet that I'm very interested in, the Soviet ballet, every gesture meant something that people could understand and made them happy. And it reflected those ideas of socialism and equality. And also it was based on classical art. Cervantes, Lope de Vega, Shakespeare, Pushkin, those were the stories that every worker from a factory, every peasant could understand, could see staged and dance. So this is what actually kept these people through the horrendous years of the Second World War. And it reminded them what they were fighting for. It, it reminded them of the joy and the successes that they had built, the society that they built. And that's the power. It's the power that comes from the meaning and the practical accessibility and connection to the people's understanding. So do we have now an art that belongs to the people, that appeals to the broad masses, that grows hand in hand with the rest of our culture and art? Or we're talking about disconnected little niches and every artist has to find their niche. We are fragmented and we are dismembered. And the treasures that were hidden from us under the Iron Curtain. What are these treasures? The treasures of socialist art that are inseparable from the history of the revolution. The heroic spirit of, of the patriots, those artists who were patriots, those ballerinas who were at the, at the front dancing for the troops and actually, you know, training to shoot. Uh, pianists who were performing in Leningrad during the siege. This is the triumph 
that help these people fight and win fascism. We must not forget that this art exists. And um, of course, in the Soviet Union, what we had what was an equality between Moscow, Leningrad, and the rest of the Soviet republics. So you didn't have like Helen to move away from your village to go to Moscow to become a dancer or to become an actress. You could stay in the national school and in the national opera in Ufa, in a small, tiny, small village where Nureyev actually trained to become a dancer. So there were theaters in every corner of the Union. And they combined national folk art and the classical dance that was the heritage of, of the European classical dance, basically. So yes, this is art as an army of the cultural front. And yes, this kind of art can beat any type of anti-humanism because it is made out of educated artists. And it passes from teacher to student in a living relationship, commitment during time. And of course, it passes to the audience, it educates the audience, and it passes from generation to generation. And most importantly for our socialists, it reflects the values of social equality, of being useful to the everyday people and to contribute to collective happiness. So these are the functions that art should be fulfilling. And we haven't seen this only in the Soviet Union historically. We see the consequences, the results of this education that was passed down to countries from the Soviet Union to countries like Cuba. The Cubans owe their excellent uh, training system to the, the, the Russians because they, the Russians trained them. And of course, there in Cuba, we have another national ballet school that is the fruit of the Cuban revolution. And we have Fidel who invents, invested money. It was one of the first priorities was to invest money in education, in literacy, and in art literacy to make people artistically literate. So he gave lots of money for this creation of a national ballet school. And nowadays you go to Cuba and you go inside a taxi and the taxi driver knows the names of the ballet dancers, like a taxi driver here knows the names of footballers. That says something about the triumph of the revolution in Cuba and how this effervescence, the spirit of change still exists in Cuba today. And it makes no discrimination where you come from, which village you come from, which family you come from. If you are talented, you will get full state scholarship and you become a dancer. Yes, they get them at, at a young age because you need the flexibility of a young person. But there are amateur groups, community theaters in every single neighborhood. And that's not only to do with dance, it's to do with fine arts, to do with theater, to do with everything. 
uh, to move away from Cuba and the excellent results of the Cuban teachers. We look at Venezuela. Venezuela has developed another publicly funded, government supported um, music education program that you might know of. It's called El Sistema. And it promotes all the human opportunity, all the development for impoverished children. And it turns them into amazing classical musicians. You might have heard the orchestra of Venezuela, of the, of the youth of Venezuela, directed by Gustavo Dudamel, who is a product of this system. He was a poor child who became a world famous conductor. And this system in Venezuela includes more than 400 music centers with more than 800,000 young people going there for free. And they have four hours of classical music per day right not half an hour of you know playing with the recorder to tick a box to bring a charity into the school that's going to then fire its teachers during the pandemic that's the difference and lastly i would like to refer to china china during this pandemic didn't stop its creative production didn't stop its rehearsals. They were rehearsing ballet dancers, were rehearsing wearing masks. They're having Zoom meetings about how to choreograph their next piece. And um, I know people who work in China. I know Russian teachers who work in China. I know Chinese. I follow in, the so in their social media, their um, efforts. And they have created a new Opera based, it's basically socialist realism that. It's socialist realism 2020. There is no other way to describe it because it refers to the struggle of the nurses. Imagine an opera based on key workers, right? If this is not socialist realism, yeah, for our age, what is it? What can it be? And they collaborated with um, opera singers from Italy, the Chinese. And also they created the first um, full length um, ballet choreography that again combines national folk elements, this time from an ethnic minority, the Miao ethnic minority. And you know what the theme of this ballet is in China that premiered in the last month in September? It's the uh, this project that they have in China, you know, to lift people out of poverty. That's the theme of the ballet. So um, this creative triumph over COVID that we can see in China, that we can see in Cuba is another answer to this question, if art should be for art's sake. And we cannot have socialist art right now. We need to have to build socialism first, right? But we have to remember what socialist art stands for. We need to educate ourselves and demand it again. We need to remember that in this country, there could be amateur groups in every workplace and we should not patronize workers. We should not patronize kids with a lesser quality of arts, but with the best that humanity can offer. 
elitism for all, the best for all. Art should not be a thing for itself that is somewhere in an ivory tower, remote and unknown. It should be ours. And it is for us to feel inspired, to be uplifted in our struggle to build a better world. And we should absolutely do away with this exploitative market for artists, this individualistic and selfish capitalist culture that can only create ugliness. Thank you very much, comrades. Thank you, Tess. Thank you, Helen. And Jody, perhaps I, I would like you to talk a bit about your experiences in music education, if possible. Thank you, Christina. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Uh, it's hard to follow that, actually. Um, and I, uh, once again, I feel moved listening to you, you know, thinking about what you're talking about there when you describe socialist art, you know, the way it revives and revitalizes our folk traditions, that it produces art with a working class content that is accessible to all, accessible as in you can turn up and understand it and enjoy it, accessible as in you can partake in it, you can be one of the performers in it uh, without these horrendous barriers. It's part of your education, part of your life experience to know how to perform. It's always noticeable to me as someone who grew up, you know, in the arts, that in a socialist country, there is no divide between kids who do arts and kids who don't. All the kids can sing, all the kids can dance, all the kids can play a musical instrument. None of them are shy to perform or sing at the drop of a hat because to them it's just a part of life. They do it every day, all the time from a very young age. It is part and parcel of their life experience and their communal activities and their education and all the rest of it. And uh, they are the richer and the better as human beings for that. Um, and it really uh, inspires me. I love that uh, phrase you used, the engineers of the soul. Uh, we need art. And the idea that art helps people live, I think, is an is a absolutely right one. You know, there, and there is a reason, you know, when you were talking there about the, the, the Soviet experience, you know, it just reminded me, you know, there is a reason that Shostakovich is recognized as the greatest orchestral composer of the 20th century when the elite music world in the West was becoming totally introvert and producing music that was for looking at and analyzing more than it was for listening to. You know, music which is absolutely impenetrable to someone who just turns up and wants to hear has nothing to say to anybody really beyond the composer and a group of his very close associates, you know, that the Soviet Union produced an orchestral composer like Shostakovich at the same time that the West was producing these kind of Schoenberg 12 tone type of, you know, impenetrable nonsense. Um, and the capitalists, of course, will always say, even while they recognize his greatness, they will insist that he was great in spite of socialism. And of course, we contend that he was great because of socialism, because of the socialist content and inspiration of his work and the, the role that he was able to play in, 
in mobilizing and motivating the workers to build socialism, to fight fascism, to rebuild again after the defeat of fascism. You know, that's a noble calling. And it's something that people rise to when they have that mass audience and they're playing a meaningful role in social life, they will rise and produce their absolute best. And, you know, I think Shostakovich is one of many examples of that. Um, I mean, Christina asked me to talk a little bit about myself. I don't very often. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the deputy leader of the Workers' Party. Uh, I've been a student of scientific socialism for 25 years or so. Uh, but before that, I was a student of music. Um, I was lucky enough to have free violin lessons from a fantastic Suzuki method teacher at my primary school in the 1970s. And because he was a Suzuki method teacher, it's a method that came out of Japan after World War II, uh, which believes in immersing children in musical learning from a young age. And so because he was that type of teacher, I got free lessons on the violin at the age of five at my primary school. And that was an incredible start. And I, it makes me just, it makes me cry inside sometimes to think of what a different world we would live in if that was available to everybody as it should be as in socialist countries it is you know my teacher my first teacher inspired me in fact more than any other teacher i ever had he made me think of myself as a musician from a young age so much so that no matter what else came along that stayed with me and i, I went on to study music at university really because of the experience I had with that very first teacher that I never could give it up. I was a violinist, you know, in my heart uh, all through my youth, you know, almost every day in between the ages of five and 22, I was involved in some form of music making. And, you know, as I got older, that was increasingly collective music making. You know, I was playing in orchestras, groups of all kinds, singing in choirs. Um, there was a certain point where I, I gave up. I, when I realised I probably wasn't going to be a professional violinist, uh, I kind of dropped out of music making. Um, and, uh, but you know, in the, in the years that followed that, I worked in the music industry in various capacities. And so on the one hand, my early classical life gave me an insight uh, both into the joys of collective music making, but also into the elitism that's still pre prevalent in that system, even though I had access uh, you know, through a, a, a state funded program that was still in existence at that time, uh, there still was a lot of elitism in the system, a lot of barriers to getting on, who you know, what you know. Um, you know, if you don't have parents and people around you who guide you the right way, um, you, you don't do the things you need to do uh, to kind of advance. Um, and then my time in the music industry gave me an insight into the other side of things, you know, the commodification of music. Music has product, you know, music has units to be shifted. You know, these are the terms they talk about in the music industry about our kind of cultural product. Um, to them, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge marketing machine for shifting product and the product could be biscuits, uh, you know, it could be bolts of steel, or it could be CDs by some band or another, you know. Um, and I started to become much more aware of the, of the move away from community participation 
music as a collective communal activity uh, towards this increasing division between, on the one hand, professional entertainers. So, you know, you only study music if you're going to be a pro, right? Otherwise, what's the point? And on the other hand, we have this passive paying consumers of music or other cultural products. Um, and there's this sort of split between the two, uh, which is uh, really harmful, you know, I think. And then as a parent, I've become really painfully aware of the way that the framework of opportunity that did to some extent exist, not to the extent I would have liked it to have done, but certainly to some extent existed when I was younger, that framework of opportunity to take part in musical activity has really been decimated. Um, and not only for classical, but also for folk and even for rock and roll. You know, it's harder and harder for working class kids and working class communities to access the halls, the facilities, the teachers, the school programs, the youth orchestras, the local concert venues. You know, my school was a state comprehensive school that had two orchestras, a swing band, a wind band, two choirs or three choirs. You know, okay, it was a school that was known for being into music, but it was a, it was just a state comp, right? Um, that is that's non-existent now. I looked around at all the music departments of all the senior schools around our way when my daughter was, you know, looking at going to senior school. There was nothing remotely approaching. And mainly it's because um, the funding for musical education in primary schools has been cut back and back and back until it basically doesn't exist. Like um, you guys were saying earlier, the tick box some schools they sort of tick that they do some music provision but it's not meaningful and the reality is the amount of tuition that a few kids get on a couple of instruments is not enough to make them good enough or to inspire them to carry on and by the time they get to senior school the few kids who started to play an instrument have stopped again it's just not a thing for working class kids anymore to have music lessons and therefore there are no orchestras in the schools, you know, you can't make an orchestra if you don't have the raw materials to do it with. And so there's a thing, if you want a music lesson, let us know, we've got a couple of teachers around, but nobody does. There's no general atmosphere and culture of music making, it's not for us. Um, there's very few touring orchestras and choirs left, and those that are still going, the tickets have become so expensive that again, it's no longer a kind of normal activity to go along to your local concert venue, which now probably doesn't exist. You know, you have to live in a city centre to have a local concert venue, not in a normal, smaller town. You know, the town where I grew up, Hemel Hempstead, had a venue where all kinds of arts came as well as comedy and other stuff. Um, and that's gone now. It's been pulled down and it's being redeveloped for housing. That venue doesn't exist, although it's a town of, you know, like 100,000 people or whatever there is no arts venue left there. Um, and that's a story that's repeated, you know, across the country. But, you know, those community facilities that we had for a little while, working class access to lessons, to performance spaces, to cheap concerts, to um, community groups, you know, an ability to run community theater, community orchestras, those were all part of the post-World War II peace settlement in this country the same as the NHS, the same as our council houses, they were given to workers as part of the bribe 
not to fight for socialism. You don't need socialism. We'll give you the things that they have in the socialist countries. And of course, alongside the cuts to the NHS and the cuts to social housing, you know, cuts to education provision, all the rest, the provision of arts access has been gradually done away with. And of course, we've been so busy fighting the things that, you know, really um, affect our sort of bread and butter. We've almost let the arts go without much of a struggle. It's been just accepted uh, that there are some kind of a frill. But, you know, as a socialist, as someone who's looked deeply into the history of humanity, it's increasingly clear to me that the arts are absolutely central to human existence. You know, they're not an optional extra. They're not a frill. They're not a nice to have if you can afford it. They are central to the human experience. They're central to our individual and our social well-being. Um, you know, it's thought that arts of various kinds, culture, may well be what set Homo sapiens apart from the other human species. You know, they all had, fire came three million years ago, a long time before there was Homo sapiens. Tools, the same, We've, they've been going a lot longer. What was it that made Homo sapiens different? What was it that enabled us to communicate with groups across huge territories, quite spread out territories? They sometimes, they had a communality of culture, objects that they created, and very likely songs that they sang, stories that they told. They created a framework in which they felt a kinship with one another and a shared experience through their cultures. Painting, singing, dancing, sculpture, music making, storytelling, acting, they've been around as long as there have been modern humans. They bind our communities together. They're central to our social cohesion, to our experience of our life. They're a vital part in marking our important occasions, bringing us together. You know, we talk, we called this meeting art for art's sake. And that's a slogan actually that was coined, coined by a bourgeois artist who was wanting to say that art had no purpose other than kind of personal self-expression. And, you know, doubtless that is one of the important aspects of art that it allows us to express emotions and individuality in ways that can be difficult in normal life. But the arts, I think, are much more than that. And Christina's talked about it. I think all of our speakers tonight in different ways have highlighted that they have a vital role in bringing us together, expressing our collective as well as our individual experience. And it's my firm belief that without an opportunity to take part in communal artistic expression, we're not fully human. We're not living full lives. And if you look around at the the social fragmentation, the isolation, the absolute epidemic of anxiety and stress and depression. I think that the breakdown in communal art producing, dancing, singing, music, music making, acting, the breakdown in this social production of art in our communities has a big part to play in that fragmentation and the capitalist tendency to break down our community bonds and divide us into performers and consumers is really to me just one more proof of the system's inhumanity you know christina said before you know one of my favorite uh sayings is that capitalist logic is opposite to 
and incompatible with human logic. And everything we see in the field of the arts shows us that capitalism is not fit for purpose and it needs to go. Uh, comrades, before I end the meeting, I have to make just a few announcements to the rest of our audience. Um, this, as I said earlier, this has been the last of our weekly Zoom meetings. But if you can uh, sign up to our email list, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms, keep informed about our campaigns and our events. You know, um, most of you will know that George Galloway hosts a weekly uh, show called Motes, the mother of all talk shows on RT Sputnik Radio. It's on YouTube, it's all over the internet. He has record-breaking audiences of over a million people every week at the moment, and that needs to keep growing. We are determined in our party to do everything in our power to build a truly independent media. British workers desperately need a source they can trust to make sense of the world and counter the mainstream corporate lie machine, which dominates our minds, which misdirects our attention, uh, which confuses and befuddles us and keeps us divided and stupid. Uh, George is launching uh, Moats Extra, which will go live uh, a week tomorrow, I believe, next Wednesday evening. Um, and it's a, it's a really great step forward in that project of creating that new media. So please search the internet for Moats Extra. I think you can find it uh, on George's website and also on um, Patreon, George Galloway's Patreon page. So look for that, sign up to it. We need to grow our own media. Um, and as for the Workers' Party, you know, we are starting to move away now from our kind of lockdown mode with our kind of online focus and into building a real on the ground organization which our class so desperately needs. We're getting into building our local branches, campaigning in our communities. We're gonna be hitting the streets this weekend with the leaflets promoting our Corona, corona Tax campaign. If you haven't heard about that already, visit coronatax.org for more details, sign the petition, Get in touch with us if you want leaflets to give out in your communities. Get in touch with us if you want to get involved with our work. If you're still not quite sure what we're about, if you've not been tuning in every week to our meetings, please do visit our YouTube channel, Workers' Party of Britain YouTube. Look back at our meetings. We've had fantastic speeches and presentations, discussions on practically every topic of importance. Look at those. Go to our website, workerspartybritain.org, click on the about section, read our program, read what we're all about. If you agree with our 10 point program, our simple demands for a future for the working class, get in touch and get involved. Thanks very much, Jyoti. Anyone that's watching on YouTube and you're signed up as a member, please do log on to Zoom now and you can join us in the members meeting.